following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Since the fall, the entire race has been involved in self-justification. We see it immediately in the acts of Adam and Eve, where Eve, um, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and they both blame God. Counselors call this blame shifting. You boys and girls are very good at blame shifting. Self-justification. So there's an altercation with a brother or a sister or a child with whom you're playing, and all you're doing is pointing the finger at the other person and saying, it is his fault, it is her fault, it's not my fault. We as husbands and wives do the same thing. We each casting blame on the other, accusing the other for difficulties and tensions that we might have in our relationship. Blame shifting is going on throughout the history of the human race. But the very worst type of blame shifting is what Adam did in the garden. The woman you gave me. Now before God, he was seeking to self-justify. What I want to show you this morning from these first 13 verses of Job is the folly of self-justification in the sight of God. Now, it's been a couple of weeks, but... We looked at chapter 8, and in chapter 8, Bildad, the second of Job's friends, is accusing Job of perverting the justice of God. Now, what has Job been doing? He's, he has complained. He, he, he wants to die. He, he wants answers. He, he, he knows that he's not a wicked man, and, and they're accusing him, and thus he's also involved in, in a proper justification of himself before his friends, uh, and all they can do is keep repeating, playing on the one, uh, one string they have left, and that is, you must be a wicked man because God is judging you in this way. Bildad says that all you need to do is do good. If you do good, you'll be completely restored to God. Now, what we have in chapter 9 is Job's answer to Bildad. And as we work our way through this, you will see, although some commentators will say it's not so, that Job continues to deal with the things his friends say. They ignore everything he says. Because they've approached this debate with the preconceived notion that only a wicked person can suffer the way Job is suffering. And they've put Job in a very difficult position because his own conscience bears testimony to him that he is, as God himself says, blameless, upright, a God-fearer who turns away from evil. He doesn't know why he suffers as the way he does, but he's seeking to respond to the accusations that they make. Now, the big accusation that comes from Bildad is that Job has perverted the justice of God. And so in these first 13 verses, he is showing he has a much higher regard for justice than Bildad does. Bildad's declaration is, uh, is simplistic. It is, uh, it is too narrow. It is... Uh, completely uh, misconstrued. And so Job must respond. And in Job's response, he, the Holy Spirit is teaching us the folly of self-justification because of the perfect, wise, and powerful judgment of God. 
folly of self-justification because of the perfect, wise, and powerful justice of God. We'll break that down into two headings. The perfect justice of God, the wise and powerful justice of God. So we start in simply the first three verses to consider the perfect justice of God. And you'll notice, as I've already said, that Job is interacting with what is said. If you boys and girls, when you have logic, you study, debate, uh, you can do a diagram. Now, from their side, there's, there's no lines. But in Job's speeches, you will see he clearly is interacting with their accusations and their statements. So we read in, in verse 1 and 2a, Then Job answered, so now he's responding to Bildad, In truth, I know that this is so. Uh, the word translated in truth is our word amen. Truly, I agree with you that God's justice is perfect. But basically what Job shows here is that Bildad has a very incomplete, insufficient grasp of God's justice. Bildad would understand the negative part, that wicked people suffer, but not always in this life. But on the positive side, he said, all you have to do is reform your life. Come to God and, and clean things up. And what Job understands is that his life is already clean in terms of a relative righteousness, but that doesn't make him acceptable to God. No, Job is saying God's justice is much more profound than merely uh, a man repenting and changing the actions of his life. Now, he asserts this in verse 2, the second half, with a question. But how can a man, and here's the word, uh, uh, a mortal man, uh, uh, a man uh, in all of his weakness, be right before God? Perhaps you remember this is exactly what Eliphaz stated from his vision. In chapter 4, verse 17, can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Job showing, I'm listening. Uh, I accept that revelation that Eliphaz gives in his first speech against me. And by his question, he's demanding the negative answer. Now, the question is repeated. We read it in Psalm 143, too. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. We read it in the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Notice how Paul uses the word flesh here for man, again, to get to this, uh, the, the crux of the problem, uh, that we are fleshly. We are weak, we are frail, and our nature is also fleshly and sinful. And so Job here asserts in a very powerful manner his belief that no man, no woman, no boy or girl can make himself or herself right in the sight of God. He then demonstrates the reality of this in verse 3. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Job says, I want you to come into God's courtroom. So 
You don't agree with what I'm saying? Well, come now and stand toe-to-toe with God. Come and dispute with Him. He says, if you come into God's courtroom, you cannot even answer Him once in a thousand times. When the Old Testament uses this word, a thousand, it's simply talking about an infinite number, uh, an uncountable number. Uh, that uh, out of all the answers that one might offer to God... You can't even answer one accusation that God brings against you. Heap upon heap, sin of every day, thoughts, words, and actions. And in one accusation, in the multitude of God's glorious accusations, and you cannot even answer him one time. In fact, it would be as ludicrous as a a man before a judge who's just been demonstrated guilty of murder. So what does he do? He says, but your honor, I've never had a speeding ticket. And I've always paid my taxes, so give me a break. No, we can't answer God. This is we can't answer a human judge, even once in a thousand times. We, we are found there guilty sinners. Not one of us can justify himself or herself before this righteous God. Now, in Job's statement of this, the Holy Spirit is teaching us a very important lesson with respect to the relationship of our sanctification, what we will refer to as our inherent or our relative righteousness, and our perfect righteousness. Now remember, Job was a blameless, righteous, God-fearer turned away from evil. And what Job is saying, I cannot use one of those things. Not one thing in my life can I use to commend myself to God. Do you understand this? This creates a tension for us. You and I are responsible to pursue sanctification, uh, independence upon the Holy Spirit, with all of our might, (laughs) with all of our being. But in that pursuit, we may never rest upon one attainment in holiness, one act of dying to sin, one positive thing in our experience to make us acceptable to God. We cannot do that. And that's what we learn from Job. And in spite of who he was... One of the godliest men who's ever lived. He could not commend himself to God. And this turns our attention then to what Pastor Groff said in our meditation. That we need more. We need much more because no man can make himself right. And by the way, that is the term justify. We see it in its its forensic sense there, even as Eliphaz used it earlier. And and it will be used later in the book of Job. Not one person is able to make himself, herself, legally accepted in God's court. Which turns our attention to uh, the great need of a Savior, the God-man, who obeyed the law of God perfectly, and then offered his perfect life as the atoning sacrifice for our sin, for our justification, as we read in Romans chapter 3. Now, Job's statement shows us that we need more than pardon. And I trust you know the difference between pardon and not guilty. Every year, or at least at the end of every presidential term, the presidents or governors will pardon people who are in prison. Now that pardon does not say they're not guilty. All the pardon says is your crime is forgiven you and you no longer have to pay the price. But you see, Job needed more. And you and I need more. We don't need just pardon. Pardon will not make us acceptable to God. No, we need a positive declaration 
of innocence. Now that's what you have in justification. As you remember our catechism, it's the act of God's free grace, whereby he pardons all of our sins and accounts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Because of that work of Christ, yes, our sins are pardoned. But to be acceptable to God, to be admitted as not guilty, we must then have this positive righteousness purchased by Christ through his perfect obedience. Placed onto our account, God then constitutes us legally righteous and declares us to be not guilty. That's the only answer to Job's question. How can a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl be justified, be declared not guilty in the sight of God? Do you boys and girls understand this? You see, it's very important that you begin to understand this truth. But Job doesn't stop there. He says, well, perhaps uh, you want to move from the courtroom to the battlefield, so to speak. Perhaps you do want to go toe-to-toe with God in combat. You, you want to be like uh, Paul's uh, opponent imagined in, in Romans chapter 9. You want to talk back to God. You want to contend with God about this verdict. So now in verses 4 through 13, he shows us the folly of self-justification because of the wise and powerful justice of God. Job says, come on, come on, and let's go against God. He introduces God by these two attributes in verse 4. He's wise in heart and mighty in strength. Now, he's shown the perfection of God's justice. Now, the wisdom and power of God's justice. He's wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has defied him without harm? You notice the repetition, the pairs, wise in heart, mighty in strength. It's It's a way of intensifying that God's wisdom is beyond all human wisdom. God's power is beyond all power. He who is wise in his own being, he who is mighty and powerful in all that he is and he does. This is the God with whom you contend if you seek to justify yourself before him. This wise and powerful God. What's the result? What's the result if you seek to justify yourself before God? Who has defied him without harm? Literally, it is who has hardened himself and remained safe. You see, this word defies not, not nearly strong enough for what the Hebrew hardened yourself and remained safe. Uh, think back through the experience of biblical history. Cain hardened himself, was judged. The generation of Noah's day hardened itself, it was judged. The men and women at the Tower of Babel hardened themselves and they were judged. Pharaoh, the great example in Romans chapter 9 of one who hardened himself. He fell under the inexorable judgment of God. The scribes and Pharisees in the days of Jesus. So it is throughout Scripture. No one, no one defies God. No one is able to harden himself against the judgment of God and remain safe. That's the argument here. That's what he wants you to understand. Some of you might this day be defying God in terms of your acceptance with him. But you know, it's not the only way we harden ourselves. Some of you might be rejecting some particular doctrine or some particular commandment of Scripture. You're hardening yourself against God. Believe me, it's not safe. Now, Job goes on to prove this point by expanding on the wise power of God in his providence. 
He begins with God's exercise of wise power in the creation. And then he moves on to God's wise power in his governance of people. So he moves broadly from the creation. In uh, verses of 5 through 9, um, it is God. Notice that that's all uh, in italics. You're actually, you're reading, Who has defied him without harm? Who removes the mountains? They know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place, its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun not to shine, sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear, Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? Job first, by the Holy Spirit, demonstrates the power of God by the fact that he can alter the unalterable. He can change things that appear to be unchangeable. And he gives us three examples. So the first, well, it's a mountain. He removes the mountains, and they know not how when he overturns them in his anger. Now, boys and girls, I'm sure that all of you have seen mountains, right? And is there anything that is more sturdy or powerful and strong than a mountain? I mean, I've seen, we just got back from England, I've seen forts, I've seen castles, I've seen strong walls, and they all can be destroyed or they just give way and decay to time, but not a mountain. A mountain can't be moved, but God moves mountains. He moved a mountain in his anger when in the flood he disrupted the entire um, terrain of the earth and he removed mountains. He removes mountains by uh, volcanoes. A few years ago, my wife and I were uh, in, in Oregon and went to see Mount St. Helens. You go up the observation tower, and here's a mountain with the whole face of it blown out. And then there's pictures, like, like a diet, before and after. Here's what it like, looked like before. Here's what it looks like now. God did that. God does those things, but only God. Now, yeah, man can take a little dynamite and make a hole in a mountain, but to remove a mountain... No, only God can remove a mountain. Next, he turns to something else that's quite stable to show that he can make it unstable. In verse 6, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Now, in biblical cosmogony, what, how the Bible thinks about the earth, the writers did not really think that the earth was built upon these pillars. No, the pillars are a way of demonstrating stability. And so it's a figure of speech to show that this earth indeed is stable. The terra firma is stable. Just if you've seen the construction of a skyscraper, the foundation goes as deep as the height of the thing. These great pillars in the ground, and that's the figure here. That this earth in which we live, uh, in fact, is immovable. Well, God shakes the earth out of its place. He did that again in the great flood. As I said, he changed the whole appearance of the planet. But he does so now by earthquakes. I have a friend who lives in Carmel, California. And he was actually in a field when they had one of their very famous earthquakes. And he said that the earth literally rolled like water. That's what God does. Only God can do that. God can cause the immovable earth to roll like water. And then the third thing that is absolutely stable 
in our universe is the sun and the heavenly bodies. In fact, God in Jeremiah 33 uh, reminds us that the covenant with night and day is this fixed pattern of, the, if that can be broken, the covenant of night and day, if the heavenly bodies could vanish, then God would not keep his covenant with David. So the stars, the sun, are stable. We'll talk in a moment about they are predictable. But notice, God can command the sun not to shine and set a seal upon the stars. Again, you remember when he did that with Joshua? Joshua needed more time for the victory, and so he cried out to God. And God caused whatever the mechanics are, the sun did not move. It stayed high in the sky. Only God could do that. Later on, when Hezekiah asked for a sign, what did God make the sun do? It moved backwards. Of course, the most awful, awe-inspiring example of this is when our Savior was hanging on a cross, and it was supernaturally dark for three hours. You see, it's God who can seal up the sun and the stars. And so you see his wise power in his control over the unalterable. He's willing to change the things that from our perspective would be unchangeable. Now next he changes the figure and he says, well, God can take that which is in great flux and cause it to remain firm. Get two examples in verse 8. Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. The heavens here refer to our immediate atmosphere. That is in great flux. You experienced that last night, didn't you? Did you hear that thunderstorm? The heavens were in great flux as thunderous clouds rolled over our heads. But what he's saying is, is that anytime God wants to, he can make the heavens like brass. And there would be no clouds and there would be no storm. There'd be no... Um, movement in the atmosphere. And then even more powerfully, he says that God is the one who tramples down the waves of the sea. The wind walker is the sea walker. Trample down is a figure in speech not only for uh, 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 stealing something, but of conquest, of being a victor. And God is saying, or Job is saying, that God's wise power can smooth the sea. And we know one who walked on the sea, don't we? The Lord Jesus Christ, who by a commandment not only stopped the storm, but turned a tumultuous sea into a, a sea of glass, pointing out again the deity of our Savior. See, God's wise power is seen in governing this world in which we live, and he can alter the unalterable. He can cause that which is in flux to become stable. And then the third example is he can control the ordering of things that are both stable and in order. Progress. And so he set, puts our attention in verse 9 to the constellations, who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Now he chooses here four great constellations. We know the bear is the stars cluster around the northern star. It's the north, Orion is east, and Pleiades is west. Now, they've been built by God, put together by God, so that men have imagined these particular uh, symbols and such that they can see in these stars, and it never changes. So God's put them into a relationship that's unchangeable, but they're constantly moving. They're all in 
a motion, and the motion is actually part of their usefulness to us in determining uh, directions and, and times and, and seasons. And notice as well, because so many foolish people say that uh, our forebearers knew nothing about the southern hemisphere. What do you think the chambers of the south are? We're talking here about constellations that are in the southern hemisphere, like the southern cross that you can't see from the northern hemisphere. Uh, I'm sure it's quite true. You realize that when people lived for a thousand years at a time, they accomplished fantastic uh, development of culture. And one of those things would have been fulfilling the mandate and exploring this world. They didn't think the world was flat. No, they sailed their boats to the southern hemisphere. They knew that there, Job knew there, that there were constellations in those chambers of the south. So you got that combination. The stars remain in their fixed relationship, but they're in constant order, and it's all governed by the wise power of God. So in God's providence and creation, the Holy Spirit teaches us here that he is wise and powerful. And then the Spirit moves through Job to speak about human experience, verses 10 to 13. Who does great things, unfathomable, wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. Now, Job here highlights four aspects of God's providence with men. It's incomprehensible, it is invisible, it is incontestable, and it is irresistible. First, God's ways with men, well, they're incomprehensible. What? Who does great things unfathomable? Wondrous works without number. This is Job's experience. He has not begun to grasp what God was doing in his life, but he recognized the sovereignty of God. He never denied the sovereignty of God. And although he could not begin to grasp why God was doing what he did, he still knew it was God who did it. And so it is with the ways of God. There are so many things that are beyond our comprehension. As, as Paul wrestles in Romans 9 through 11 uh, with God uh, for a great period of time in history, passing by the majority of our old covenant ancestors, yet sometime in the future is going to bring a great fullness of them into the church, all in the purposes of election. What does Paul cry out at the end of that discussion uh, in Romans chapter 11? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. God's ways, as you well know in your own experience, are often incomprehensible. Sometimes, in our experience, the answers will begin to become more obvious. But other times, it'll only be in heaven as God would condescend to say to us, you know, I did it for this reason, or for that reason. And we'll actually grow in our grasp of those things as we dwell with him in eternity. Next, he says that the ways of God, their, their wisdom, their power is seen in that his ways are invisible. Verse 11, were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Now, there are many things that God does through second causes. Uh, we even, 
even a volcano, an earthquake, we, we can see you know, how God is using these things he's created to, to alter the unalterable, uh, or the controlling of, uh, of the sea. But so many of God's ways not only are incomprehensible, but he is an infinite spirit. And this infinite spirit acts in an infinite manner. And he's at, he's at work He's at work in ways that we cannot even begin to grasp, not even begin to perceive at this point. Of course, I think the greatest illustration of this is the, is the wonderful work of regeneration. Whether it's in the womb, in childhood, or in an adult who's gone far into sin, it's an invisible work, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's a work that takes place in the uh, subconscious. We're not aware of it. We're only aware of it in its consequences and its effects. And there's no greater work of God since the creation of the world. And it's an invisible work. And we bless his name for it. So God's wisdom, his power is seen in the incomprehensibleness of his ways with people, in the invisible nature of so much of what he does in our own experience. Yes, even in our sanctification. There's so many things that the Spirit is doing of which you and I are unaware and it's only as we look back and we can say, well, yeah, I see now what God was doing as the Spirit was working so powerfully in my life. Incomprehensible, invisible, and then incontestable. Look at verse 12. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? The word snatch is the word for a robber. Somebody comes into your house, uh, what are you doing? Uh, you remember uh, the priest uh, to Micah in Judges. And uh, when the, the tribe of Dan comes by and, and they, they steal the idol and the ephod, what does he say? What are you doing? Later on, Micah comes out. What are you doing? And says, be quiet, man. Be quiet. And so a robber comes in and uh, now you might be playing with somebody and they grab your bat or something. What are you doing? Give that back. But um, God snatches away and no one returns. That's what he's saying here. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? Can you ask God, what are you doing? Now, you might. Job did. And it's not a wrong question if you do it humbly. But when he, he takes your loved one, he snatches them away. What are you doing, God? You don't have a right to that. That's the, see, that's what the problem is. But God does. God has a right to every single thing about us of us, and that is ours. And he could snatch away in a moment, as he did Job's family and possessions. We may not say to him, what do you do? It's incontestable. And then, it's not synonyms. In the fourth place, he is, his work is irresistible. Verse 13, it has to do now with God's anger. Remember, we're talking about the, the justice of God, that it's wise and powerful. God will not turn back his anger beneath him, Crouch the helpers of Rahab. Now, Rahab is the Hebrew word for the arrogant, the, the proud, and the powerful. And that's why the word itself is used as a synonym for Egypt, because the Egyptians were, were proud and, and arrogant and powerful people. But here's the idea that uh, you could assemble all of the proud ones, all of the powerful ones, and they're under the control of God. All the nations of the earth cannot... Resist the anger of God. He'll not turn back his anger. It moves like a tsunami. 
It is an irresistible force when God begins to vent his anger against us. Now, what Job is doing here is showing us the the wise and powerful judgment of God, but you know, there's not many more glorious pictures of God in the Bible, is there? I hope you'll, you'll take time to meditate on this revelation of your God in his uh, wise power in creation, his wise power in the affairs, his wise power in your own, your own affairs. What a beautiful and, and glorious God. And this leads us back to where we begin, that we, we bless his name, that the complete revelation of who he is, and, and we declare the greatness of of his works. And so Job has wonderfully for us demonstrated the folly of self-righteousness. It's foolish because of the perfect, wise, and powerful justice of God. You cannot answer him, not even once in a thousand times. You cannot resist him when he moves against you in his awful, wise power. So I would ask you once again, I hinted at this earlier. Are any of you here today resisting God and justifying yourselves before him? You know, we do that. My church membership, my baptism, I belong to a Christian family. I'm living a good life. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. All of these are ways of self-justification. Listen, if you do that, you need to understand that you're hardening yourselves and you'll not remain safe. You remain in this attitude of self-justification and God's anger is going to move against you with irresistible force and he will grind you under the wheels of justice in hell for all eternity. Do not remain in this state of self-justification. But also hinted a while ago that all of us at times do that, don't we? Do you blame shift sometimes? You're excusing your behavior? Well, I can't help it. That's who I am. Or I just have had so much difficulty in my life. Or I've been ill. And we go on and on and on. Or there's a particular commandment in the Bible. Well, that's just not who I am, you know? That's just too hard for me. Or perhaps I can't do that. Perhaps it's a doctrine. Well, how many times I've heard and read people who say of our sovereign God, if that's who God is, I want nothing to do with him. I was meeting with my new advisees Friday afternoon at the seminary, and uh, one man who now actually is uh, interning uh, under Jesse Pickett, one of our graduates north of Jacksonville, as he was coming to uh, the Reformed faith, his wife said, if that's who God is, I want nothing to do with him. He came home one day, and she was bawling uncontrollably. Because suddenly she realized, God is sovereign. And if he'd not saved me, I'd be lost. So don't push back. Some truths are hard to submit to. Some doctrines are hard to submit to. Perhaps in your life it's the Sabbath. Um, Perhaps it has to do something with work or family, but uh, don't justify yourself. Own yourself before God. Yes, I've got a problem here. God, not only pardon me, but give me grace. 
for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then above all, glory in this great truth of God's justification of sinners. For in that, everything we've said about God, his perfect justice, his wise and powerful, incomprehensible, invisible, uh, incontestable, irresistible ways are all manifested in this grand scheme that moves from election to glorification. It's because of this Paul could exalt. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who dies. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God. Who intercedes for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.